Is the word trauma overused? Is our choice of words helping us? Hello everyone, welcome, welcome to Signpost for Living with Dr. Kirsten Hunter. Hello Brian, how are you? Hello Kirsten, I'm very well, thank you. I just discovered your last name's West, I did not know that. Brian West, everybody, we have Brian here. <laughs> Lovely to be here. <laughs> and you know, we were talking earlier about what we're going to be getting into because you've got this brain that I just want to spend time with and you came up with this really great idea of talking about trauma. What is trauma? How do we define trauma? How does terminology, language affect us? And I think it's a really good topic. Thank you. It's certainly one that's been on my mind for a while. Why? When? How? What? I guess if if I take a step backwards... Yeah, I like that. ...then um, my children are now you know, middle teenagers, but when they were younger, you'd go to the playground and if, if a child fell over... They look at the parents, and the parents' response would then guide, essentially determine how the child would respond. Mm. And there were those parents who would immediately rush to the child, or, or have a frown face, a sad face. And those children, invariably, if they weren't actually injured, would would be upset and cry mm. and so forth. The parents who say, "Okay, up you get, no worries," then the parent, the, the child, right. the child will get up and be okay. Yeah, and so. That particular moment was was kind of defined for the child by the response by others. So it wasn't the actual incident; it was the interpretation of the incident. Yes, and and I and and thinking about that now, you know, fifteen years later, I think it's happening more and more, and not just parents with children, but people with each other, and perhaps even people with themselves, is when something happens their manner of actually describing that event to themselves, or perhaps more importantly, the way they describe that event that occurred uh, to them or with them, although they were there for it, uh, the way they actually describe that to others. Um, and then the flip side there is how people then describe or how people presume um, to describe the experience of someone of an event. I think that can easily lead people down the path of, of like the child who gets cuddled when they've just fell off the slippery dip and they haven't actually hurt themselves. Mm. It can lead them to then not go on the slippery dip again rather than seeing it as a temporary mishap. Okay, my brain's just exploded with whole topic of yeah. conversation. <laughs> oh, my brain hurts, I swear. But, you know, we are storytellers mm. and we... We really do um, put some, you know, we call it narrative that gets overused, but, and we define what has happened, our role in it, how it's affected us, and that has an enormous impact on our recollection of what's happened, how it affects us moving forward. Mm, I'd agree. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to get into it, but my life's been pretty damn tricky. And in no way, shape or form would I ever reflect on my life in a negative framework. I would see it as being lots of opportunities where I can kind of grab my resources and and get back on, on back get back on track, strengthen, move forward. 
And um, that's probably one of my strengths. When I've met some people, and let's talk about a relationship breakup, and, you know, they will talk about their ex-partner and they will talk about that person with so much um, hostility and victim mentality um, and, you know, just incredible negative energy. And you think, wow, you've had a really tough time, you poor darling, that's really tough. And you think it's happened in the last 6, 12 months and you find out it was 13 years ago. And they've defined themselves based on a hardship that's happened to them. So I don't know if this is where your brain's going to. It certainly can. And mm. I, think, I think what you're getting to there is that, and, and I agree with this, is that some events, they're temporary. They're just things that happen. Yeah. We, and and it's, it's quite often um, up to us about how, and I think this comes to the second part of the title is, are we using the right words? Is how the words we use to describe what happens to us is to a large extent, I believe, going to influence whether or not those events are going to carry on in defining us. And sometimes we can choose words, perhaps intentionally, to enable ourselves to be defined by an event. And sometimes I think we can also choose words that enable us to unintentionally or cause us to unintentionally be defined. Give us some concrete examples. Well, your example of a um, you know, someone had a hardship with a a relationship some years ago and and they've enabled themselves to be defined by it because um, they have perhaps viewed the situation in a way and described it to themselves in a way that prevented themselves from ever being able to get over it or get past it. Move forward. To move forward. And the narrative they then, I guess, got stuck in kept them in that spot. Um and, and, and they, they just endure in that, and that, that could become their identity. Okay, so my brain's exploding again. Mm. I'm thinking two topics of conversation. One, how do you define trauma? Mm. Second conversation is acceptance. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the second. So, you know, life is going to have very many um, crossroads where we have a tough situation come our way. And... I think it's an resilience is about the capacity when we're in a tough spot to bungee bungee back. It's about recovery. It's not about not having difficult times. It's actually about saying when we have the difficulty time, difficult times, finding a capacity to be able to recover and to take our strengths and to kind of rebuild and move forward. It's also about being very resourceful. And, and yeah, I, yeah, I'd agree. And I think also there's a time element there. What do you mean? That resilience, um, the recovering, the bouncing back, doesn't necessarily have to happen immediately. No. It can take time, depending on the nature of the event or events that occur um, or the experiences. Sometimes, I think, understandably and, and um, you know, logically, some, some things take longer for some people to overcome, to, to bounce back completely from. Completely valid, completely real. Going to the... The first sort of branch of conversation you suggested, the definition of trauma. Mm. I think perhaps what we're seeing is, a, is, is the word trauma being used um, in situations where perhaps it's not the best choice of words if we're actually hoping ultimately for people to be able to bounce back from things. 
Okay, my brain's going again. So I think there's two issues there. I think there's, is there a, a framework that kind of is the definer for what is trauma and what isn't and why do we even bother with language? And the second is, what is the power of that language? Because I know a lot of people that have what anyone would describe as trauma. You know, they have really, you know, uh, horrendous domestic violence in the home environment or they might have sexual abuse or they might have had a rape um, or they might have had trauma. I had one person with, you know, he was held up at knife point and they have had the capacity with time to work it through. Um, so trauma is really interesting, isn't it? It's, it's what, how do you define trauma? I think the examples you gave are ones where, you know, if we look at the, the so-called pub test, what is those examples would, would what is the pub test? The pub test where if you go to the pub and ask a group of people, just ordinary people, does would this fit? Okay. Then I think you'd we'd find that the examples you just gave of people and their experiences would pass the pub test of being able to be described legitimately as, as traumatic. Mm. I think what's happening is <clears throat> and where I wonder about the use of the word is is where it's the, the same word is being used to describe events that are not of that nature. Such as? Okay. I had a, we had a visitor to our house once. The child would not get out of the car. Um, the parents did not require the child to get out of the car. The, car, the child just stayed in the back seat under the blanket. And the reason was is because it was too traumatic to get out of the car. Um, another example was last last year I broke some bones in my body. You did a good job. <laughs> I did. I broke a few bones. You went flying <laughs> through the air upside down yeah, twice. Yeah, um, not good. And I didn't bounce. Tough year. Twenty twenty one. Not a good year. Uh, it was fine. Um, <laughs> it, 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 there was a them's case the, in point, ladies and gentlemen. Them's the breaks, you could say. But yeah, the, <laughs> people then said well, that must have been very traumatic, deeply traumatic. So the word trauma was not sufficient. It had to be very or deeply traumatic. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, actually, it was neither of those things. Physically, it was traumatic because I, you know, broke stuff. Mm. It was an inconvenience. It was a hassle. It was annoying. It was annoying. It was frustrating. But it wasn't traumatic and likewise for the kid who didn't want to come out the back of the car mm. it, to get out of the car and say hello to your grandparents um, when there's no reason not to um, or, or anyone else it, it's not it's not going to traumatize the child mm. to in that situation it, they might be uncomfortable they might be upset by that but to say that they're actually going to be traumatized by doing that, I think is actually, in many ways, and this is my greatest concern, is um, in many ways going to undermine or erode the ability for the broader community to understand the experience of those people for whom you gave examples earlier, whose situations we do agree were traumatic. Mm, absolutely. You know, clinically, I'd kind of break it down interestingly, into, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, so that's when we've got, we've got a trigger. It makes us feel that we're fundamentally unsafe. And from that, we might have flashbacks. So that's like, um, 
like a movie that plays through with the the event, intrusive images. So it's like a, a picture that comes in like we're there in real time. Or we've got hypervigilance, so this heightened startle response. We might have panic response, panic disorder, panic symptoms, panic attack, you know, that whole spectrum, sleep issues, etc. And these are really typical symptoms of a trauma response. And from that, we can also have phobias. So that all that's all kicking in. But we also have those people that don't have any PTSD symptomatology whatsoever, but they have got fundamental attachment issues. So it basically, the trauma they've been through makes them feel... Do I feel safe? Do I feel that, that I can trust people? And um, that has a huge impact enormously. Okay, to interrupt. So yeah, you, go, you, go. you said the trauma that they've been through has caused these attachment issues. Mm. So are we presuming then that it was traumatic? That Are we defining there that a trauma is anything that could cause an attachment issue, for example? Well, that's a whole conversation because plenty of people have attachment issues and they've just had a negligent parent that is not traumatic per se, but their fundamental needs have not been met. 30 years ago, when my grandparents were still alive, they never, we never heard them use the word trauma. Yeah, I know. It is very much a generational thing. We, We may have heard them use the word upset. I'm upset. Yeah, she's a bit upset, or he's a bit upset. That's distressing. D- don't, no. don't recall that one. We didn't have that many syllables in our family. <laughs> um, I love it. You know, <laughs> that's tough, a word you used that's before. Tough. Mm. You know, going through some tough times, hard times. Mm. Um, admittedly, there wasn't the same awareness of, of mental health and so forth. By any stretch. By any stretch. Mm. But I think there were some merits in... In the um, the approach, the the language that was used, the words that were used, did not enable things to become long lived. Um, Can I jump over? Mm. I really see a really close parallel between pain receptors and psychological pain receptors. Mm-hmm. So when you have physical pain. The brain literally has this communication device. And the more you focus on that pain, the more you experience the pain. You literally do experience the pain. And I think with psychological pain, it's a really, really delicate balance because on the one hand, you don't want to be stoic and suppress the pain and say, I'm perfectly fine, it's no issue, shut it down, we're all fine, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Shut, 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 shut. But... By the same token, you also don't want to over-focus on the psychological pain and be defined by that because that's going to amplify it and it's going to give it more and more fuel. And there's this incredible um, balance juggle between finding this middle ground where you can acknowledge that something's impacted you but um, not to be defined by it and not to decide that that's going to have power over your choices moving forward, that you're going to be, you know, what am I going to do? What's the rest of my strengths, I guess? What can I do to really, you know, work through that, acknowledge it, um, but not be defined by that? I think, yeah, and, and I think the word balance is important. I'm reminded of, of reading something of, of maybe six or seven years ago, um, in the neuropsychology world about the problem with positive thinking. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a title for a paper? The positive, <laughs> the problem with positive thinking. I, I love it, that. Maybe it's your next podcast. There you go. Um, there you go. Yeah. Is, and, and these neuro evolutionary neurobiologists or something or other, they were basically saying the problem with positive thinking is that if you just set yourself up for positive thinking, then you're setting yourself up to fail because biologically, from an evolutionary point of view, our brains are wired to find the very things that we don't want. We want to avoid danger. Mm. So we're constantly scanning yeah. our brains. Selective for, attention. Yeah, mm. that's right. And so if you're constantly... Um, trying to be positive, then mm. what that means is your brain is constantly going to be hunting out negative thoughts. And they gave the example, you know, of, of, of if you ask someone to think of anything you like, but don't think about a purple elephant. Yeah, exactly. Okay, then suddenly everyone's thinking about purple elephants, mm. which I think are quite nice, yeah, by the way. Mine's cute, mine's cute. It's um, cute. So that's at one end where you're sort of almost crippling yourself by being an absolutist in terms of positivity. Mm. And maybe from a brain and, and impact point of view, just focusing entirely upon one's own perceived trauma, be it real or otherwise, um, has the same effect. And it's the balance in between that I think we we ought to be encouraging people to find. You know, psychology, if we look at... Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, which is Aaron Beck, who I've met, by the way. I know, I know, I'm a hero. No, it's good to go meet your Elvis, hey. Um, and he died last year, by the way. Got a photo with him, you know, because that's what you do when you're in the Netherlands. But anyway, um, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, and if we look at um, Buddhism, there's an enormous overlap, enormous overlap. And that's all about acceptance and saying... In, as in contrast to positive psychology, it's really saying, yeah, this is tough, this is real, this is in front of you, let's have a point of compassion and understanding and acceptance and now we have somewhere to put that and we can move forward with that. So it's a really interesting concept and that's, I think, where trauma fits. It's, it's saying, um, I really think it's about trying to stay as grounded as possible. This is what's happened to me. This is the impact that it's had on me. These are my strengths. This is what the choice element that I have. Um, and now what am I going to do with that to move forward? And I'm not going to be defined by this trauma. And a lot of people really struggle with the concept of being a victim and um, because they don't want to be defined by this. I, I don't feel like I really com comprehend the reactivity to the language of victim. Do you? Mm -hmm. I think... Again, it depends on victim of what. Well, trauma in. <laughs> it depends on what trauma <laughs> is. Define trauma. <clears throat> Excuse me. If if we're talking about the examples you gave before, then you could say yes, victim of um, situations that are traumatic, legitimately so. Mm. Um, and I understand that you know we live in a sort of post well not sort of but we live in a a postmodernist world where you know, people's own lived experience and their own values is, is tr their own truth. Mm. And with that comes their ability to then define words for themselves. The problem I find is that when they do that and then put those words into the public sphere, it diminishes the collective understanding or uh, agreement on what those words mean. And in some respects, and I... I hate to use this word, it, it, it can actually weaponise those words. 
to enable people to... Uh, Brian just got a frown from me, by the here's way. A, <laughs> here's a... Which upsets me deeply. I find that deeply traumatic. Weaponized. What do you mean? Um, okay, so we've talked about cognitive behaviour therapy and, and the premise of you can do these things in order to move on. Yeah. Yep, to get yep. past trauma. Yeah. I think, actually, part of the issue we're having is people are choosing to use language to define experiences that enables them to not move on and to not have to move on. Okay, so that brings us in a whole topic of being the identified patient. So that's when people can have a secondary gain and they can have a sense of themselves as being, this has happened to me and they, there's like a... Is that no, frowning at well, me? Well, I'm frowning at you because I'm thinking, yes, absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and this conversation is going to end far too soon because just as you met your Elvis last year, I'm meeting mine right now. <laughs> um, no, I think... I can't, oh, okay. Well, it leads into another topic, I wonder, mm. which is, you know, why are we... You know, I, I, was, I was at the gym this morning and the telly was on and... You're no, looking good. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, the, the telly was on and I knew I was coming in tonight and I thought, okay, I'll just listen to the words people say. And at no point in time did anyone use the word to describe upset, uh, to describe a, a difficult situation as upsetting or a, a bit of a bother. Mm. The entire time it was the word trauma. So this person has experienced this event and it was described for them or to the, to the viewer as being they've experienced this traumatic event. This child who was you know, brought out of a house because it was flooding, well, if you look at the footage, um, yeah, the water was up to this man's ankles and and this child was brought out. She probably could have walked um, and, and the, the television person was saying, you know, she's deeply, she'll be deeply traumatised by this forever. Mm. Um, on other occasions, people were interviewed and they were talking about how how traumatic it was to hear someone say something that they didn't like. Um, but it wasn't traumatic. It was very traumatising. It was very traumatic, extremely traumatic, deeply traumatising. So we've got like a media language with amplifying. Yeah, and it's language that people are using Catching. themselves. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't just the media using it to describe um, others, but there mm. is certainly that media exaggeration that they tend to do and amplify to use your words. But it was... They're, they're words that people are using themselves. You know, yeah, you know what really, really, really bothers me is there's well and truly people in the world who have experienced trauma and it takes away from them. I'd like, exactly. And, you know, I know a woman um, who, you know, for the first 10 years of her life, she was just repeatedly raped and tied up and abused and so forth. And then for the next 30, not much different happened. Horrible. Now, she's an elderly woman now. She doesn't watch the news. She used to understand her life as being unpleasant. Oh, when the Me Too movement started, mm. and she, she said, wow, these women are talking about being deeply traumatised. She basically, she hardly speaks anymore because she says, I, I don't know what words to use anymore. Okay, so she's understating her case, clearly. Um, well, she's probably didn't have words ever to state her case. That's sad. Um, well, it's, it's sad, yeah, that's right. But in, in terms of, you know, this is a person whose lived experience was genuinely, mm. it, it would pass the pub test mm. as, as traumatic. 
She, well and truly. Yeah. Um, and she hears people on the television who talk about, you know, someone pinched him on the bum in the 1970s, which was acceptable behaviour in the 1970s. Mm, and, unfortunately. And now, retrospectively, they're deeply traumatised by it. Now, this woman who was, you know, tied up and rolled down the hill, um, naked after school, that sort of thing, she kind of looks at this woman who's deeply traumatised by a pinch on the bum and she, she's lost. Mm. Um, so there's a real desensitisation of this word. Yeah, yeah. And really taking away the, 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 the um, mm, I was going to say power, but that's not quite right. Well, I was going to say agency. Agency. And Go ironically, perhaps the people who are choosing to use these words, mm. and let's say use them sloppily, mm. um, they, I, I suspect their goal also is to gain agency. Um or to exercise agency over mm. what's happening in their life. Um, and that brings me to the, the point of, you know, if, if this is actually a phenomenon that's real, that people are starting to use language increasingly to, that is amplifying what is otherwise, you know... Distressing. Tra- transient, upsetting, distressing, difficult times. Tough time in life. Then, and, and not... Um, in a way that sees them actually seeking to overcome that in any way, then then why? What is this prevalence? And I can't help but wonder if it's not because people aren't too comfortable. What do you mean by that? I mean, because there's the issue of people getting secondary gain from attention and and being defined by that. I think I think for people if I think about the people I know who have a bit of a, a bit of a zing to them. A yeah, zing? A zing. Do a, I have a zing? Oh, absolutely. Oh. That's why I'm here. Wonderful. Um, As do you. <laughs> the, the, you know, the people who have a bit of life and a bit of pep about them. They're not, they're My beautiful husband, John, would call that chilli. Chilli. Do you have a bit of chilli? Well... <laughs> You can eat as much chilli as you like. <laughs> um, I mean, I know, you know, John. He's a free diver. Mm. You know, uh, mm. you know, he's he's he puts himself in uncomfortable positions. Mm, absolutely. Uh, both when he's doing it and when he's training for it and so forth. I think what I'm getting at here is is people like we're at a stage of life where you know any number of history books will tell us that we are the most affluent, the most comfortable we've ever been. Mm. We're at the point where we've, you know. Evolution doesn't control us, we control evolution. We control our environment. We turn the air conditioner on, we turn the heater on. You know, we don't put clothes on or take them off, we press buttons. <laughs> um, we don't even have to wind up the windows in our car anymore. Um, and, and so the things that upset us now yeah. are, are so really inconsequential to our actual survival. And I think people live very, very comfortable lives, and intentionally so, because you know, we were taught to you know, look after ourselves, to set ourselves up, to avoid discomfort. And I think when people get to a point where they, they have very little discomfort in their life, then they, they you, look for it. Are you saying that there's an expectation that we shouldn't have discomfort in our lives? So when it does happen, it's got this big exc- exclamation mark behind it. 
Yes. That mm. somehow any discomfort is uh, somehow an, an act of exceptionalism. And more often than not, it appears to me to be an act that um, people interpret or view as being intentionally um, caused. So, so it's something that's done, someone's done something to cause this. Mm. It's how, how it seems to often, not always, there's always exceptions to this. Do you know, this um, is really interesting when we think about um, trauma and we think about sexual abuse. Now, that's, the, that, that's probably the most, um, e- like, sadly, sadly, there's a commonality there, but also easily understood, you know. We know that's not okay. We know that's harmful. Um, and what's really fascinating is that you could have child A and child B. Child A goes and discloses to the parent that the sexual abuse has happened and they are supported they are hear the verbal feedback, that's not okay, your needs are important, I will advocate for you, you know, I will support you. Child B is the 95% of children who don't disclose to anybody because they think if I just close my eyes it will disappear because they're in the moment and because they don't have language around it, they're ashamed, they're scared and so they don't say anything and then that, um, the impact of that abuse sits with them and shapes them as time goes on. Child A might have had worse sexual abuse, but they're okay. They're actually okay because they've gone and had the capacity to um, get it out of their system, feel supported, feel nurtured, and and move forward. Child B buries it, and um, maybe the abuse continues. And so what's really fascinating when we talk about trauma is also the impact of people and the support network on that fundamental um, incident or abuse that happens. And that's a whole other layer as well. I think so. And again, it comes to the definition of trauma. In those situations, pub test, yes, that's, they're traumatic occasions. Hmm. I have no concern with that. The, the situation where a child um, falls off a swing... <laughs> okay. And mother goes to child, father goes to child, or chest feeder goes to child, whomever goes to child and says, <laughs> oh, that's, mm. you know, and, and treats it like it is a traumatic event. Yeah. So In, that amplified so response, which is amplified like a fear response. response, the child goes, okay, I need to feel fear right now, and this is not okay, what's just happened to me. Yep. And I think what we're getting to there is the concept of harm versus the concept of injury. Define that. Uh, well, injury is, you know, where your your body is in some way hurt, or mm. your, your psyche is in some way hurt. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be permanent. Yeah. The the concept of harm much more intangible, and so the in that situation the kid falls off the swing could be injured, may not necessarily be harmed, but the 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 response of the grown up and this goes back to the playground and the grown up's response. Um, will determine whether or not that child, I guess, is harmed mm. in terms of a longer-term impact of that event. Mm. Um, if, if, the, if the parent or someone else you know, picks the child up, nothing wrong with picking the child up, 
comforts a child, nothing wrong with that at all. But in some way, um, um, interprets this event such that the child has no other way of interpreting it other than this is really bad, mm. then that child is more likely to be injured more permanently and it's going to stay with them mm. than if the, chi- if the parent you know, picked the child up, gave them a cuddle and said, you'll be right. You'll be right. Yeah. And it's that real interpretation of fear, isn't it? It's an interpretation of fear and I think what we've got here is the, the actual, um, perhaps the imposition of one's fear uh, onto others. And this is the concept we were mentioning earlier about safetyism. Okay. Oh my gosh. Boom. I was exactly there. What yeah. is that? It's it's a term. I think I first read it in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, have you I heard? wish. No. No. Okay. No. No. I, I'm nowhere near where your reading capacity. I imagine <laughs> you read some really great breadth and yeah. Anyway, what mm. what's tell me about this? Um, it, it's basically it, it's it's what where did Cancel culture come from. What does that mean? Cancel culture. As We're, in just cancel everything? Well, the, um, if we look at the modern world at the moment, you know, um, there are many people who, let's say, if they go to a university campus to do a lecture, they won't even be allowed to speak because they'll be shut down. This is cancel culture. People who may have ideas that are not in line with what let's call it the so-called, so-called or the vocal majority, want to be okay. heard. So people who, are, who might be saying something that's not politically correct. Ah, no. people who might be saying something that some people believe is not politically correct. Okay. Or people who may be wanting to say things that are not the same as what other people have said. An example in Australia was our former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, mm-hmm. Um now he went. I to always thought I'd like to go to dinner with him. He owes me a beer. He owes you a beer. Yeah, I bought him a beer once, but <laughs> he basically said, "Look, we, we can't have another beer because you've got you're not whinging about anything. So I've got to go and talk to some other people who want to whinge, so they feel like they've been listened to." Yeah, fair. He owes you a beer. He does. That's right. Right. And I'll hold him to it. But yeah. he, you know, he's a former prime minister. He was a self-made businessman. He's he's, he's a smart cookie. Um, he went to. He was invited to the University of Sydney yep. to do a lecture. Mm. Um, he was not able to speak. Why? Because students said no, and they came in and they heckled him and they caused such a ruckus that it prevented him from actually being able to speak. I have a big problem with that. Um, I'm yeah. all about you know respecting individuals with what they want to bring, hearing their opinion, and then you having your opinion in reply. So, not, not silencing. Okay, so there's one example. At, at the, that's an example of cancel culture. Mm. Um, that's very evident. Mm. Now, aligned... So these people were talking about the rise of that on the American campus, the college campus, which is basically where it was born mm. and it spread throughout the world. And that's then given rise also to this concept of safetyism where people... Um, seek to, and uh, let's go back to the purple elephant, are consciously, so consciously aware of anything that may cause um, harm to themselves or others. And so this is where... Including listening to an opposing opinion. Can't hear an opposing opinion, must not be allowed to be said because that would be 
Well, they shouldn't do debating then, should they? See, I think you need to be shut down. <laughs> you're just revolutionary here. <laughs> you're on the wrong side of the microphone. They would say you're on the wrong side of history. There um, you go, wow. Uh, and so that's it's given rise to the concept of safe places. Mm. Um, I was talking to a fellow who works in the ABC, mm. and he was saying in the kitchen in the ABC headquarters in Ultima, I don't know if this is true, there's a sign-up, there's a policy mm. on conversations for the... And, and you're not allowed to ask people, um, you know, why are you having salad today? You had a sandwich yesterday. Um, because that creates, you know, it's, it, it's, some people would interpret that as a microaggression. Oh, wow. Which is means that this place where I want to go and have my lunch um, is unsafe. Oh, so it's this really kind of moddy coddling. Yeah, yeah, that's and hence, kind of hence the title of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. <laughs> Yeah. Can I ask just on wrapping up this this yeah. phrase victim survivor? Mm. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think it means that someone they they believe something's happened to them that that was unpleasant, and that means that they're a victim. Yeah. But they've 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 survived it. Yeah. Which means that they're a survivor. So rather than saying well, I had a bad day the other day, or yeah. or, or something awful happened. Yeah. Um, it, it's put into words that enables them to be, at once, someone that something bad happened to. But I guess, on the flip side, someone who says, I'm not going to be defined by that, I'm going to be defined by my response to it. Mm. And so, in Australia, um, Australian of the Year last year, Grace Tame, mm. um, you know, who's, who's done wonderful things in terms of legislation around... Um, child sexual assault and things like that. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, she, I think she describes herself as a victim survivor. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, okay. uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure as adults. I like the word survivor. I've, I've had a lot of people, you know, mm. it's an empowering word, whereas the victim is sort of like defining you and you're still in the gutter. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very de- disempowering word. I think I think they are. My concern is the word survivor also has a certain element of permanence to it. Mm. That so when when can I no longer be a survivor mm. and just be Brian? <laughs> you know. Um, you know. You know. It's really interesting when I think about my history. I've been through a whole lot of stuff which a lot of people would easily define as trauma. Yeah. You know, but I am not impacted by those various events. I'm not. I'd like to flip that and say that's great. Mm. For people who... Because of my mental health and I've worked really, really, really hard to come on the other side and strengthen from that. My concern, and this is where the the topic is, are the words we choosing helping uh, which us, are helping us mm. is I think we can limit ourselves in terms of our getting over things by choosing to use words that um, create permanence rather than allowing transience it's kind of is your trauma going to define you is the event going to de- define me is the event going to define you because as soon as I call it trauma then then for many people, that's we, there's no no going back from that. Especially if it's 
depends and on the individual. If it has superlatives added to it, deeply traumatic, then not only is this thing really bad, it's really, really bad. There's mm. no going back from this. And this, this then gets mixed up with the, the choice that people use to, mm. to buy into it. Some people, by all means, yes. It's not necessarily a choice. They don't choose to buy into it. They're just messed up by stuff. Mm. But there are those who I believe who choose to dwell in the land of it. Um, and these are the ones who I look at and I think, hang on a minute, you're, you're, don't you have obligations as a member of a functioning society to, to at some point in time, sure, if you're acknowledging that something happened that you're saying is traumatic, then, well, what are you going to do about it? Mm. Because you can either be defined by that mm. um, or, or you can do something about it. it. It seems to me that people who are defining themselves by it... What does that look like for you, doing something about it? Coming to see someone like you. Mm, definitely. Um, Having the skills, learning about yourself, yeah. learning that there's an alternative approach. It's, it's, <laughs> this is not going to be a popular comment, but it's almost like for some people it, it's, it's a form of virtue signalling. What, 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 what? That Educate me. Virtue. Virtue signalling. Signalling. The concept that, you know, I can go hell for leather on social media talking about some cause or other. Mm. Um, and that high, I may not actually do anything about it, really. Mm. I just talk about it. Mm. And that's signalling my, my virtuosity, that I'm a virtuous human being. And um, so I maybe I'll, I'll, buy, you know, I'll, do, I'll have lots of comments about people with cancer, you know, you know, and that, or, or poor people, or, or what have you. And, and that highlights to the world that I am a virtuous person, when in fact I may not be. Um, so it's kind of saying I value this issue, this is a social issue, I want to draw attention to it, mm. but there's a secondary gain in there. Oh, absolutely, and that's the motivation. Mm. It's, it's you will value me because clearly I value these things. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And, and I think people, grown-ups, do the same thing with these experiences that they define as trauma. And as I said earlier, that's what in psychology would call the sick role. When you get a secondary gain from having a problematic right, yeah. um, self-definition. Mm. And, and I can't help but wonder now, and maybe this is where this conversation was really going to in, in terms of helping me with my own thinking, is, is the motivation for people to be, let's say, uh, misusing the word trauma because of the secondary gain mm. they obtain. Mm. Maybe another conversation is, is does it help them to uh, never have to face growing up? What does growing up mean? How do you define that? Adulting. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? I really do think that the reality is that um, so much of our psychological state is subjective mm -hmm. and life is tough and life is going to have hurdles on the one hand, we have to have an acceptance that there is going to be suffering, and I don't know if our society really grasps that. Um, and there is going to be the normative suffering and being able to say this is a rough time right now rather than defining it as trauma. I think that's really important. And then I think that when we do have things, events that do happen where it is very violating or it is very uh, threatening to our, our sense of survival that is traumatic, 
But even then, our job is to process that and get healthy through that process so that the level of trauma is diluted and it becomes less traumatic to us. And all of it is a really active process in saying, I'm responsible for myself and I'm going to work really, really hard to work with what's in front of me, work with what my strengths are so that I can forge forward. And that's what resilience is. And I think this is really about us taking responsibility for ourselves and defining ourselves on our mental health rather than any kind of attention that we might get from being in the sick role. And um, that's kind of my overview. What do you think? I think you're, yeah, the suggestion of the role of the normative reference group I think is really critical here. Mm. And it goes to my concern that if, if we're normalising... Um, well, if we're if we're amplifying, no, I don't know what's the word here. If we're starting to more collectively um, use the word trauma to define things that perhaps wouldn't pass the pub test as being traumatic, then that makes it difficult. And especially if that's combined with uh, a culture of a greater emphasis on avoiding potential harm than on being resilient. Your, con- your, your, your point there about taking responsibility, mm. I think that goes to my comment before about growing up and being an adult. Yeah. I regularly, you know, as you know, we've got five beautiful boys and three big boys who are kind of young adults, and the conversation mm. is very much about, look, life's going to be shit sometimes. You yeah. Know? You know, it really is. There's going to be things that are going to happen, and um, they're going to be tough. It's going to be a crossroad. It's going to really be moments of loss, moments where it's really going to be confronting and it's going to expand you. And as a family unit, we're there for you. We're going to work it through. You're going to be okay. And I think on the outset, having a framework of saying that's coming your way, that's life. Life's going to have majority positives by the, but on the whole, let's hope. But there's going to be the tough times. I think by having a framework of acceptance of suffering, then we actually have a framework for um, the difficult times that maybe some people would refer to as trauma. Absolutely, and I can't help but wonder, and you know about this more than I, but does that framework then help to um, reduce the likelihood of anxiety-related conditions? Mm. Because people aren't so worried about bad things happening. No, there's they're, more acceptance. They're not living them. in fear of something bad happening. because yeah, It of, is an alarmist response. Yeah, with a presumption that if something bad happens, then... It's the end of the world. Mm. Mm. I think we've got to take the good with the bad, hey? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Well, we better wrap up. Thank you so much, (laughs) Brian, for coming in. That was, I mean, talk about chewing the fat. You know we're going to keep talking now. I think so. (laughs) Well, we haven't finished the wine. (laughs) We haven't. We haven't. Everyone, thank you so much for coming along. So here we are on Signposts for Living with Dr. Kirsten Hunter. If you want to catch me... Um, the website, kirstenhunterauthor.com, lots of resources on there. We've got Facebook and Instagram, Kirsten Hunter Author, Twitter, Kirsten Hunter AU, YouTube, Psych in Your Car, and here we are on Signpost for Living with Dr. Kirsten Hunter. Thank you for coming along, Brian. I love your brain. I love your heart. Seriously. It's my pleasure. <laughs> See you. Bye-bye. Bye.